everyone, I'm Sanhara, and welcome to the Black Girl's Guide Fertility Podcast. This show is for all women who are dealing with infertility, but is specifically dedicated to Black women because we have a problem with opening up when it comes to this issue. And I don't want to leave out the bin. You guys are welcome here too. On today's episode, I'm Skyping in Lisa Hendrickson Jack, author of The Fifth Vital Sign and host of Fertility Friday Podcast. And we're going to talk to her about her journey and how you can prepare your body for conception. Take control of your body. So I'm here with Lisa Hendrickson Jack, um, and she's going to talk about her journey and how she's able to take control of her body and went on to have two boys. And she's also going to talk about her book, how the things she went through led to her writing the book that she wrote, The Fifth Vital Sign. So I know that's a lot packed in one, but just jump in, Lisa, and start talking about your journey um, and how you became a mom and the things you went through. Well, thank you so much for having me, first of all. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Um, well, my journey started basically around the time I started my first period. Uh, my very first periods when I was, I had my first period when I was 15, I believe, 14, maybe. And they were painful and heavy right from the start. And by that time, I had already witnessed my mom go through, you know, her own experience. Her, she had a hysterectomy. Um, I don't remember exactly how old I was. I was probably, you know, between eight and 10 or something like that. And for several years prior, she had these heavy, heavy periods that would have her kind of incapacitated for a couple of days. Like she, you know, when her period came, she'd be on the couch. So, um, and when she had her hysterectomy, my aunt came to stay with us. And so I was privy to some adult conversations at my tender age (laughs) and my aunt had had a hysterectomy as well. And it was just a thing. And, you know, all these members of my family and, um, you know, as black women, you know, that we tend to have a higher chance of having fibroids and having a lot of these different types of issues. So from a young age, given that my period started out problematic, I always had the sense of there has to be another way. I don't want to have hysterectomy. I want to be able to uh, be as healthy as I can. So when I was in high school or yeah, when I was in high school dealing with these heavy, painful periods. I basically went to the doctor and, you know, two seconds later, he gave me a prescription for the pill. And so that's how I handled it in high school. But then when I, you know, got into my late teens, early twenties and became sexually active, I really didn't want to be on the pill for birth control. I just felt like there was no end date. You just take the pill, you know, until you don't. And I was really concerned that it could have an effect on my fertility. And I saw some of the women in my family struggle with fertility issues. And I knew I didn't want kids like at age 20, but I wanted them at some point. Mm -hmm. And that's basically where it began. So when I became sexually active, I had this thought of like, okay, I don't want to use the pill for birth control. I had been using it all that time, but I hadn't been taking it at the correct time. And I felt like I would always be nervous that is it working or not. So I felt like, okay, I'm going to use condoms anyways. So I may as well just do that. And it was around that time that I discovered fertility awareness. And so basically I discovered that there's only a small window of your menstrual cycle when it's possible for you to get pregnant. And that goes against basically everything that we're taught as women. (laughs) And so, and there was science behind it. I ran to the bookstore and bought, you know, taking charge of your fertility. And I was involved uh, with a group of women on campus who were teaching fertility awareness charting and 
surprise, surprise, I eventually took a training and <laughs> started teaching as well. Mm-hmm. But basically, I mean, that is where this all began. In my mind, I thought to myself, if there's only a small window of time when I could get pregnant, why would I be taking a pill that's changing my natural hormone cycle that's suppressing ovulation that's preventing me from having a natural cycle and I don't know what effects at that yeah. time I have no idea what effects it would have on my fertility so it didn't make sense for me to take something like that um just from my own perspective when there was only this small window of fertility and so fast forward almost 20 years and I'm still talking about it because even though I've been privy to this knowledge all these years I rarely meet a woman who really does know how her body or her menstrual cycle works because it's just not something we're taught yeah. about. And, and that's hard to, as women and being an adult, it's like, you know, how come we don't know these things about our bodies, uh, but you use it to your advantage. And like I said, you have two children, you have two boys. Um, and you mentioned uh, previously that before you, your first pregnancy resulted um, unfortunately in a miscarriage. Can you talk about that a little bit and then how you were able to go on to have two successful pregnancies? Well, yes. I mean, so throughout my 20s, basically the whole time, I was using fertility awareness actively to avoid pregnancy. So in other words, I was charting my cycles and I was you know, able to identify when my fertile window was and I was not having unprotected sex at that time. So um, that's how I managed my fertility. So my cycles were intact that whole time. And when I was, my husband and I started trying when I was about 29 for our first baby uh, shortly after we got married. And it was, it was a really interesting time because I had been avoiding pregnancy for that whole time. And um, so, you know, when you're ready to get pregnant and then you just start having sex on the days, yeah. <laughs> right? You just like flip, flip the, flip the script or whatever. And so I remember, first of all, being really surprised that it took us four cycles to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot for any woman who's listening who's been through fertility challenges. I'm definitely not trying to minimize that at all. Yeah. But imagine not being on any type of hormones all this time and fully just avoid, like that was my method of birth control. So naturally, I just assumed that I would get pregnant right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that's in line with what's normal. Just mm-hmm. I, I share that because an average healthy couple has about a 25% chance of conceiving each cycle. And so for an average healthy couple, it does take an average of about four cycles to conceive. And so I was right there on average. And then when I did conceive, I ended up miscarrying promptly. So, um, I, I mean, I was charting, so (laughs) I knew basically the day that my period was supposed to come and I waited an additional week, uh, even though I could see on my chart that my temperatures were still rising. So I knew I was pregnant um, but of course I peed on the sticks so we could have that moment. And then I literally started bleeding the day after. So it was obviously sad and, you know, it was very physically painful actually yeah. the miscarriage, even mm-hmm. though it was so early on. Um, but in my case, we conceived the following cycle okay. and had my eldest son. And so, I mean, one of the things that, that I just wanted to note as well is that because I did have menstrual cycle like challenges, I no longer have really painful periods. I've since done a lot of different things to improve that over the years. But what what I experienced as a teenager was that I had these heavy painful periods. I went on the pill and then the pill bleeds, the withdrawal bleeds that I didn't know weren't real periods were always like lighter for me and less like they weren't really painful. Mm-hmm. But then every time I took a break from the pill, it would go back to really painful and really heavy. So part of, I suppose, my story was that I felt like 
although it was making the symptoms get go away, it wasn't doing anything, right? The condition or whatever was still yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that I, I did for myself was just try to not mess with my natural cycle so that at least I wasn't kind of, I felt like I didn't necessarily know what was going to make it better, but I didn't want to like mess with it, if that makes sense. Normal periods and cervical mucus. So you talked about this a little bit um, as we were ending the last question. Normal cycles. What does a normal period look like? And for me, I remember going to an acupuncturist uh, probably six years ago. And she said, well, how long is your cycle typically? And I was like, oh, probably like two days. She's like, that's too short. (laughs) And she was like yelling at me. And I'm like, okay, like, what do you want me to do? So just, you know, uh, from your expertise, what does a normal period look like? Well, I love that question. And the, what I also want to say is that when we think of the menstrual cycle, we typically just think about our period. So it's like we have a period and then eventually we have another one and we never really ask what happens in between. So, um, you know, a normal menstrual cycle. So first of all, the menstrual cycle starts the first day of your bleeding. So the first day of your true flow, and it goes all the way until the day before your next period starts. So um, when I'm talking about, you know, what a healthy cycle looks like, the period is part of the cycle, but we can also get into some of the other aspects of the menstrual cycle just so that it is more of a complete picture. So in terms of the period itself, a healthy period lasts anywhere from about three to seven days. So two days is a little bit on the short side. Um, You know, in a healthy period, we would expect it to start moderate to heavy. So it actually flows. I think of it like a sentence, like there's a beginning, middle and an end. Um, But it starts, you know, moderate to heavy and then gradually tapers off. And what the research tells us, and of course, the lived experience of women is that, you know, we lose the vast majority of our total bleeding within the first two to three days. So like 70% by the second day, 90% by the third day. And that typically is what we experience, right? The first couple of days are quite like true flow, but then afterwards it's typically kind of wrapping up. Mm -hmm. Um, We would expect your period to be a very, like some sort of color of red. So whether that's bright red or burgundy or like a rich red wine or something like that. Um, And then if you're experiencing spotting, you may have some like brown bleeding, but if you're seeing something that looks like crushed blueberries or black really oxidized, then that would be outside of what we consider normal. And although some women do experience some, you know, clotting, it's helpful to know that excessive clotting is not normal and pain. Uh, So although pain is very common with menstruation, it is not normal. Um, I had a conversation with one of my clients a couple of weeks ago. And what I've found over the years is I have to really ask about the pain. I have to be very specific and ask very specific probing questions because as women, if you, for anyone listening, if you've ever experienced period pain, you're kind of used to it. We live in a culture that tells us that this is what's normal and this is something that we're just supposed to deal with. And so I'll typically, the conversation goes like this, you know, like, do you experience period pain? Yeah, but you know, it's not that bad. Okay. So on a scale of zero to 10, <laughs> where do you rate your pain? <laughs> oh, five or six. And I'm like, that's pretty significant. What if your partner had that exact pain in his penis today? How do you think that would go over? (laughs) (laughs) Not too well. (laughs) Right. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I get what you're saying. Lisa. this is, you know, so outside of the context of your actual menstrual cycle, you know, pain isn't considered to be okay, but somehow when it comes to your period, it's considered okay. So just to put it out there in a healthy cycle, there would be minimal to no pain 
And basically, and you wouldn't need painkillers to manage it. Now, I know that it's very common to have pain. I just think it's important that we know that that's a sign of inflammation. And for some women, it's a sign of something more serious, like endometriosis, which is one of the, you know, one of the reasons that women experience infertility. So it's really important to call it out. And I think I'm just going to like, so just to, that was the period. So just to briefly take you through kind of what happens outside of the period. Um, So after your period ends, we have basically two main phases of the menstrual cycle. So pre-ovulatory, before ovulation, and then post-ovulatory, after ovulation. So after your period dries up, you would expect to have a couple of days before you start to see cervical mucus. Uh, But as you approach ovulation, you would expect to see anywhere from two to seven days of cervical mucus. And so for anybody listening who might not be familiar with it, it can look kind of like creamy white hand lotion. So it's like, a you know, if you're going to the bathroom and you're wiping yourself or you're noticing something on your underwear, or um, it can also look like clear, raw egg whites, kind of like it stretches between your fingers. And so you would expect to produce cervical mucus as you approach ovulation. Cervical mucus is, is, you know, incredible. And I think we're going to talk about it in a little bit, but that's what keeps sperm alive. That's what is associated with fertility. And it's crucial for natural conception. And then after you ovulate, the mucus should dry up in a healthy cycle. So for the rest of the cycle, you shouldn't really see a whole lot of it. And you would expect your period to come about 12 to 14 days after ovulation. And so that kind of complete picture, that is what um, we would consider a healthy cycle. And overall, a healthy cycle can range anywhere from about 24 to 35 days with an average of about 29 days. But you'll notice I didn't say in order for the cycle to be healthy, it has to always be 28 days. We're not robots and there is some (laughs) fluctuation that is considered to be normal. And since we started talking about the cervical mucus uh, subject, let's just piggyback on that. So if you're a woman and you say, you know, well, I don't have cervical mucus, I've never seen that happen with my body. What can women do to um, get their body, I guess, on track or what should they do if they're not seeing cervical mucus? Well, there's a couple of points to, to pull out there. So, you know, if you're listening to the, you know, right now and you've been on birth control for a really long time, first and foremost, you know, if you're on the pill or other type of hormonal birth control, one of the modes of action of hormonal birth control is to suppress mucus production. So if you're on the pill or if you've been on the pill for a really long time, you wouldn't see cervical mucus, really. It's just, it's just not there. But a lot of women have experienced mucus, but uh, since we're not talking about mucus, they didn't really know what it was. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a couple scenarios. So if you've ever kind of gone to the bathroom at a certain time of your cycle and noticed that it feels really wet or really lubricative down there, where you kind of go to wipe and it's really slippery, but you Mm -hmm. feel like you have to wipe several times. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So that's one of the signs of mucus that you just didn't know that that's what it was. If you've ever had that sense of, you know, you're sitting there minding your own business and you feel wetness and you think, oh my goodness, my period's here. (laughs) And then you run to the bathroom, but there's no period. So that could be a way that you've experienced mucus before. And, you know, one last example is if you actually did notice that, you know, every month I just seem to get an infection (laughs) every single month, I just have all this discharge. So there's a lot of women who end up in their doctor's office getting tested for STIs and things like that, Mm -hmm. um, because they just didn't know that, you know, every cycle as you approach ovulation, you actually produce this, this mucus and it's a perfectly normal, healthy part of being a woman. 
wouldn't life be easier if we were just told this when we're little girls? Exactly. <laughs> like, why don't we know this? <laughs> yeah. It's not an infection. <laughs> um, if it occurs, you know, every single cycle around ovulation, if it looks like creamy white hand lotion and or if it looks like clear, raw, stretchy egg whites. And if it doesn't cause you itching and burning and pain, it's just a normal, just a normal part of being a woman. Say no to the pill. So let's go into talking about the pill, uh, because I know for me and several other women that I know, um, even some teenagers <laughs> uh, that I know who actually have periods that are painful or they have, you know, any type of cramps so that they feel that are unbearable. The first thing the doctor will do is will tell you you need to take the pill, not even for being sexually active, but to help to control and help to eliminate you having, you know, those severe cramping or even, you know, moderate cramping. So what advice would you give to women to not have to go that route, to not even have to get onto the pill because it does alter your cycle and can cause problems down the line? Well, I think the first thing that comes to mind is to have an understanding about what the pill is doing and what it's not doing. And it, it really speaks to the standard of care for women's health care. Uh, the standard of care is not where it needs to be. And so, you know, when I shared my experience, it was clear to me that, it, that the pill wasn't fixing the problem. You know, there's a big difference between healing, you know, and getting better versus just covering it up. And so, you know, the example that I give in the, in the book of the what the pill is doing, it's like, imagine if you have a grease fire going in your kitchen. So you were cooking something and it caught on fire by accident and your alarm bells are going off. And, you know, instead of actually putting out the fire, you're just going to put a piece of tape over the alarm and you're going to sit down in your living room. (laughs) Right. Uh, So first and foremost, I feel like, so, you know, one of the concepts that I'm, you know, very clearly trying to bring to light is that the menstrual cycle is a sign of health. And so that's why I refer to the, you know, the menstrual cycle with regular ovulation as the fifth vital sign. So, um, you know, the vital signs that we're more comfortable with and accustomed to would be, say, like our heart rate, our, our body temperature, our blood pressure, and, you know, our respiration rate, how many breaths we take each minute. And we know that if something is off, if the temperature is too high, if the blood pressure is too low or whatever the case, that it means that there's something going on deeper health-wise. So same thing with the menstrual cycle. So for the women out there who are experiencing, you know, really heavy pain and heavy bleeding and things like that, what the pill does is it suppresses your natural cycle. Uh, And one of the main ways it does that is by it suppresses ovulation. So instead of addressing the problem, we're essentially shutting down the entire endocrine system. Mm. (laughs) And so your periods are problematic, right? And so when you take the pill, you stop having periods. I know that with pill packs, you get a bleed every 28 days, but that's Mm -hmm. withdrawal bleed. Mm -hmm. Um, I recently posted this meme on Facebook and I was posting it in my uh, group and, you know, just kind of putting it around there. And it's been running for years. I've I've been talking about this for a really long time, but it caused a little bit of a stir because most women still believe that they get their period when they're on the pill. And so basically when your, you know, when your doctor's telling you, we'll just put you on the pill, it's going to regulate your cycle, mm-hmm. it's going to make your periods easier. That's not that that's not correct. That's not accurate. Yeah. Because what like what the doctor could be saying to you is, 
So what we're going to do is we're going to shut down your period. So you stop having them. Mm-hmm. And every 28 days, when you take your pill packs, you're going to get a bleed, you know, and the bleed is not your true period because, you know, you need to ovulate in order to have a period. Uh, mm-hmm. But basically what we're doing is we're replacing your natural cycle with the synthetic fake one. And then, you know, in the future, at some point when you're ready to have babies, we're just going <laughs> to, right? Like, what's the plan, right? Yeah. And so, for example, if for women who have irregular cycles, irregular cycles are a sign of an underlying issue. Many mm-hmm. women with irregular cycles have a problem regulating their insulin levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and for many women, irregular cycles is a sign of polycystic ovary syndrome, yeah. which is um, a chronic issue that's related to insulin resistance, gluten intolerance, and then you have issues with sugar and also excessive testosterone production. So for a woman who has those metabolic kind of conditions going on, you put her on the pill. Well, she gets a fake bleed every 28 days. So we can all feel really good about the fact that her fake periods are regular. But when she's ready to get pregnant, just to be clear, the pill isn't a cure and it, does, it doesn't fix anything. It's not really a treatment. Mm-hmm. So when she's ready to get pregnant, now you actually have to deal with the same problem that was there before because it's still there. And the problem is probably worse because it, you just ignored it all those years. Charting your cycle. So let's talk about charting your cycle. What is the, I guess, easiest or most comprehensive way for a woman to chart their cycles? Well, I suppose it would depend on how far she wants to go down this road mm-hmm. or right, what she what she wants to get, get out of it. So there's a difference between having a general understanding of your menstrual cycle and the different events and how to identify ovulation compared to being really serious about fertility awareness and using it, say, as a method of birth control. So for every woman who's listening, if you are cycling naturally, you know, if you're not on hormonal birth control and you're, you're you know, you, you are ovulating and, and having periods, one of the ways just to get in, in touch with your cycle is to start, I mean, a lot of women start by having a period, you know, calculator app or a little calendar thing that, you know, you're just tracking when you get your period. And you can pay attention to when you have cervical mucus. So now that we've talked about mucus and we've, you know, described it and all those types of things, when you're going to the bathroom, you know, because you're already wiping yourself, I didn't have to tell, yeah. you know, <laughs> So you can just start paying attention. You're in there anyways. And if you're cycling naturally, you'll notice that there are several days where you notice something, even if it's just that increased uh, slippery type sensation when you're wiping, because not all women have days and days of clear stretching mucus. Some women don't have very much. But um, the majority of women who are ovulating, who you know have healthy cycles, healthy ovulation, are going to see some signs of mucus. And so that's the first way to to start getting in touch with your cycles. And what's interesting is that when you can start to see that, when you see that it, you know, you have your mucus for a couple of days and then it goes away, that helps you to predict your period because your period comes about 12 to 14 days after the mucus has dried up after ovulation. Mm -hmm. Um, So for women, though, who are wanting to take it a step further and are actually wanting to chart their cycles, we're paying attention to the three main fertile signs, which are cervical mucus, basal body temperature, as well as cervical position. And so you're, you you know, you're producing mucus as you approach ovulation when you're producing estrogen, so your follicles are in your, in your ovaries are developing, they're producing estrogen, and this is what is triggering that response. Uh, And then after ovulation, you produce progesterone, and then that triggers the response of the mucus to stop. So 
that's one of the signs to pay attention to. And the second sign, basal body temperature. So what's really interesting, basal body temperature is a measure of your resting metabolism. And so you would measure it first thing in the morning before you get out of bed after you've had a full night of sleep. And you're basically getting a measure of your lowest energy expenditure. And so when you're charting your cycles, if you take your temperature every morning, what you'll find is that after ovulation, your temperature actually increases to the point that you can see it on a graph, a, you know, a little chart mm-hmm. if you're charting on a graph or something. And I always, I'm kind of like a science nerd in a way. And I always found it to be really fascinating that you could see this physical, physiological shift in your body. Yeah. So it doesn't help you to predict when you're going to ovulate. It's not helpful in trying to, you know, for timing sex when you're trying to get pregnant, mm-hmm. but it is to confirm that you have ovulated and also to if you're if you you know if you do conceive it helps you to accurately identify your due date because you have a really as close as you can get at home you know other than having an ultrasound in a doctor's office charting your cycles in this way gives you the closest indication of when you when ovulation took place um so all of those things it can be extremely helpful for and then cervical position uh that's also really interesting because your cervix you would have to actually, you know, reach inside of your vagina and reach for your cervix. But your cervix changes in texture, so how soft it is in placement, how high or low it is inside of your vagina, as well as the tilt and whether it's open or closed. Like these are all things that you can feel. And around ovulation, your cervix gets a lot softer, it's higher. Uh, it's open. And then after ovulation, after your fertile window is finished, your cervix gets firmer and lower in the position of your vagina. And so between those three signs, you can really identify when is the best time to have sex if you're trying to have a baby. And you can have a much deeper understanding of your menstrual cycle overall. Managing health and diet for spouse. Let's talk about managing uh, your health. So for a lot of women, you know, we're on the go, we're moving, and sometimes we don't have, you know, all the all the time in the world to really focus on our health. But can you just talk about, you know, women exercising and sleep and diet and how that plays into fertility? And even you mentioned in your book um, about diets for spouses and how uh, sperm, I think you said sperm count has dropped 60%. Um, how how can that be rectified? Well, that's a big question. And so there's kind of two parts to it. So the first part about diet, and I think just to keep in mind, it's as women, we tend to be the ones who take on the responsibility and the blame when fertility challenges arise. Yeah. arise. So not only do we take on the responsibility of making dietary changes and taking all the supplements, but we really believe that the problem is with us. And it's often very hard for us to even consider that the problem might be with our partners. Mm -hmm. And so just to kind of get into what you mentioned, the 60% reduction, there's a global problem. The problem is bigger than all of us. We know that our earth is polluted and there's all kinds of stuff going on. And, you know, there's thousands of chemicals produced every year, but we don't necessarily think that it could be affecting our day-to-day lives. Uh, So if you look at the research in the 1940s, you know, there's a lot of different studies from all different times, but there's research from the 1940s where they were measuring what the average man's sperm count and concentration, all these different measures of sperm health. 
And so in the 1940s, your average man had a sperm concentration of about 113 million sperm per milliliter. So according to some of the studies I was looking at. And your average man today has a sperm concentration closer to, say, 40 or 50 million sperm per milliliter. And so that is what what that means is that this is a big problem. It's a global problem and it's beyond the individual level. Mm-hmm. So we no longer have the luxury of thinking that, oh, my partner's just fine because this is not about your partner. This is legitimately yeah. a global, huge problem that's affecting all men to the point that if it continues at this rate, the next generation of men may not be able to impregnate their spouses. And we've all we are already seeing that just for mm-hmm. the record. Yeah. Uh, so just in the general sense for fertility, I like to talk about that because before, so for a couple who's trying to get pregnant, if it's not happening, you know, have, have your partner tested as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. Uh, because from what I've seen in my work, it's very, very common for men to have very, very low sperm too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But secondly, I've seen a lot of women who were told that their partner's sperm was totally normal, but then when we looked at the numbers, it wasn't normal at all. Hmm. So it's, it's really important to educate yourself about that. So just to kind of put it out there, the World Health Organization released a document in 2010, and in that document, it outlined what it considers to be you know, the lower range of normal, so the cutoff range for sperm. And it was about... The sperm concentration was, I believe it was 15 million sperm per milliliter. The morphology was 4%. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember what the motility number was. Mm-hmm. But there would have, in the 1940s, a man with sperm that low would have been considered subfertile. Wow. Uh, so just to put it out there. And the numbers are, are often more related to um, whether or not they can do IUI or IVF as opposed to what would be optimal. So there's also a difference between optimal and bare minimum. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, so I share this with you just so that uh, your listeners can have that sense of it's it's not always the woman. Even if you and the hard thing, too, is like if, if you are, if you're if you've been struggling with fertility challenges, but as a woman, if you've had issues with your cycle, so let's say you've had painful periods or you've suffered from endometriosis or you know you have fibroids and you know that it causes your periods to be problematic, you might even be less likely to believe it's him because you think that there's an issue with you. You could both have issues. So mm-hmm. I think it's just important to point out there that, yeah, we got to talk about men. Um, but your question about the diet, <laughs> there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of different things that we can do. And it's a pretty big conversation, but I suppose a good place to start is to think about what can you eat, what can you do to support hormone health. So when you think about having healthy menstrual cycles, having healthy fertility, uh, in order to have a healthy menstrual cycle, your body needs to produce sufficient amounts of estrogen and progesterone, some testosterone, and in order to make hormones, uh, our steroid hormones are synthesized directly from cholesterol. So thinking about ways of getting in healthy fats mm-hmm. and cholesterol is only found in animal fats, the same animal fats, like the same saturated animal fats that we're told are, are really bad for us. And so a diet to support fertility, we, you know, first of all, think about real foods, whole foods, um, think about reducing your consumption of processed foods, and start to think about the quality of foods that you're consuming. 
and not everybody can afford to eat, you know, organic foods and yeah. local grass fed. Uh, so it's, you know, it's better to eat regular, but whole foods. So mm -hmm. both animal foods and plant foods, but, you know, looking for the quality, reducing your pesticide exposure, making sure that you, you are incorporating healthy fats and looking at reducing processed foods, processed carbohydrate foods. That's a, that's a good place to start. Killing fibroids and avoiding hysterectomy. As we close out, uh, one of the questions I get asked all the time, um, and you mentioned fibroids uh, previously, um, it's about fibroids and hysterectomies. Um, so as we close out, if you can give, you know, some, a last minute tip to someone who, you know, there's so many women who are childbearing age who are told you need to get a hysterectomy, which just upsets me so much being that people, I don't mean, and I don't know everyone's situation, but just this being the only option for that person or a doctor presenting it as the only option for that person when they want to have children. Um, so if there's any uh, last minute tips you can give to someone um, who has fibroids and was told they have to get a hysterectomy, how can they avoid it? And also where can people purchase your book and where can they find you? Okay, well, I mean, it's not a simple question, yeah. but from the most basic level, as women, one of the things that we really, uh, that I would encourage everybody to do is to turn within and start paying attention to your inner voice. Doctors say all kinds of things mm -hmm. um, because they have to, right? They're worried about liability and those types of things. And mm -hmm. so when a doctor tells you that this is the only way you have to get a hysterectomy, the first thing you can do is you know, tune into your inner voice, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you have resistance saying, absolutely not, I'm not doing yeah. that, then you have to listen to that. Second of all, you have the right to get a second opinion and a third opinion. Third, you know, from the medical perspective, just to have this kind of even broader sense, they're not looking at why did you get fibroids in the first place, right? They're not looking at what could have caused it and um, frankly, a doctor tr traditionally kind of trained in Western medicine wouldn't necessarily have much of a protocol or a program or suggestion for what you can do to um, reduce your estrogen exposure and support your liver function so that you can reduce your overall, you know, estrogen that's probably growing the fibroids. Like it's just not part of the treatment plan. Mm -hmm. So um, for a woman who's in that situation, who's really scared and is wanting to wanting a different option it's time for her to look at her healthcare team and question who's on it and who's not on it. Uh, if you only have a medical doctor who's coming from a Western medical perspective, then it's time to consider other practitioners who are looking at the body in more of a holistic type of way. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's no cure for fibroids yeah. that you know, we know of. So it's a, it's more of a kind of chronic thing. For some women, depending on where the fibroids are located, they don't necessarily cause a problem, right? And depending on how big they grow and all those types of things. But like anything else with the menstrual cycle, if you improve your overall health, you know, if you are looking at your diet, if you're reducing your consumption of processed foods and inflammatory foods, and uh, if you, you know, learn how to support overall hormonal health and things like that, it's possible to improve your symptoms without necessarily having to go the surgical route, but it, it's so personal, so individual. Got it.
if you have a woman who's been suffering with fibroids for years and years and they've been progressively getting worse to the point that now she looks like she's three months pregnant, you know, like there doesn't mean there's no hope, but it means that if she's really serious about looking for an alternative, it's Mm -hmm. time to really think about, is there um, a a medical doctor with a function coming from a functional medicine perspective, who's willing to look at the root cause near, near me that I can see is there a naturopathic doctor who's special? I, I, I keep saying that because you want to find somebody who specializes yeah. in women's health and hormones. Is there an acupuncturist? You know, somebody who specializes coming from a different perspective that is willing to support me to do this through a plan of dietary and lifestyle changes because it can be, it can do amazing things for you, but you need to have someone in your corner who can support you to do that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, and then where can people purchase your book, uh, which is so important? Uh, I mentioned the name of it in our in our intro, but if you can just mention the book again, where people can purchase it and where they can find you. Well, thank you for that. Um, so the book is The Fifth Vital Sign, Master Your Cycles and Optimize Your Fertility. And one of the things that I did when I wrote the book, I didn't want to just be another voice out there providing information um, basically like unsubstantiated claims. Mm-hmm. So um, when I wrote the book, I made particular attention to cite what I was talking about. So there's over a thousand scientific references for the listeners who are curious. I mean, for me, I'm always curious. I want to know where the information comes from. Exactly. I want to, be able to look at it myself. <laughs> and so you have the ability to do that. So the book is available on Amazon in paperback, ebook, and audiobook format. And for the listeners, if you want to read the first chapter for free. The first chapter is the fifth vital sign. So explaining that, you know, why am I calling the menstrual cycle a vital sign? You can head over to thefifthvitalsignbook.com and you can actually download the first chapter for free. And you also have a podcast as well. How can they find your podcast to uh, listen to you and hear more about your book and things you're doing? Yes. Well, the podcast is Fertility Friday. And so whatever your favorite podcast app is, if if you type in Fertility Friday, you will find me at the top. And are you on Instagram? <laughs> oh, yes. You keep asking. I'm not very good at this. <laughs> I'm not very good at this stuff. Um, okay, so I'm on Instagram at Fertility Friday, and I'm always posting fun things on there. Uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Fertility Friday with an S, and I'm on Twitter at Fertile Friday. Well, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure, and I know it's going to be informative to people that are listening. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm Sinhara Eastman, and thank you for listening to the Black Girl's Guide to Fertility podcast. You can stay connected with this movement on my website, on Facebook, and on Instagram. And if you haven't already, please join my mailing list at blackgirlsguidetofertility.com or on sinharaeastman.com. And be sure to go to my Black Girl's Guide to Fertility channel on YouTube to check out my web series.